A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this is uh, part two on our little mini-series about the life and times of Mike Tress, or Beli Melech Tress, the architect of uh, one of the architects of orthodoxy in the United States, um, and this is dedicated. This episode has been also generously sponsored by the members of the Tress family: Lezecher Nishmas Haravra Beli Melech Gavriel Ben Reb Gershon Zatzal, Veishtai Hoisha Chashuva Maras Hinda Bas Rachel Zal Beli Melech, also known as Mike Tress and his wife Hinda. It's in their blessed memory. We got a lot of great uh, feedback uh, from part one, which some of it I'll incorporate into the uh, part two. I also want to thank again the various family members for graciously sharing their information. They gave of their time to share anecdotes, memories, um, and uh, and stories and insights. Before I get back to Mike Tress, uh, I want to make a short tribute. Uh, yesterday, I want to note the passing of Rebetzin Sarah Finkel, who was the, not sure what the appropriate title is, but the, she was like the queen, the queen mother of uh, Mir Yeshiva. She was the mother of the Rosh Yeshiva Zetzal, Reb Finkel, the grandmother, of course, of the current Rosh Yeshiva, and she lived to the ripe old age of 101, um, and very, you know, sharp until the end. A very special woman. She was born in Bendin in Poland, a Hasidic family, which she as a young child, she moved to Minneapolis. Uh, she grew up in Minneapolis. Her family, she marries Rebellion Mayor Finkel, who was a grandson of the altar of Slabatka, and uh, and who had you know who had studied in the Chevron Yeshiva, had smicha from the Chevron Yeshiva, rabbinical ordination from the in from the Chevron Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, and then she goes ahead and opens the first kosher catering business in Chicago together with her husband, who was at the center of all religious life in Chicago. She was very very active, literally. Every event, every organization, from right to left and everything in between, she was involved in. She would host Rashi Yeshiva, like Mordechai Shulman of the Slabatki Yeshiva, the Panavizhirav. And at the same time, she was involved in organizations like Magain David Adom and other Zionist organizations as well. Literally every Jewish cause. Uh, she was uh, the mover and shaker in Chicago for decades. Uh, and, and she sacrificed much to have first her son, Reb Nassim Tzvi, and then later Yibadu Lechaim, Reb Gedalia go study in Israel, so far away from home, 
and uh, she was immensely proud of what she had accomplished as a mother with her kids. Uh, I remember when the Rashivas at Sal, uh, Finkel, passed away, so his brother-in-law, Yisrael Glustein, he delivered a hespit in the Mir Yeshiva during the Shiva for the Rashiva, and his emphasis was on the home that the Rashiva had grown up in, the love and the warmth and the support, which, you know, his mother, um, Rebbe Sincera, was a big part of. She was a, you know, a caterer, a painter. She had these beautiful paintings. They used to see her paintings. She was very active. Um, on a personal note, as a student in the mirror, I always would see her by yeshiva events. I always went over to her on Rosh Hashanah night. It's coming up next week, so I remember every Rosh Hashanah night I would go to go to wish her a, 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 you know, get a bracha for the new year. She was a very, very, very special woman. Uh, more recently, uh, I and my dear friend and colleague and collaborator, Davi Safir, uh, had the privilege of interviewing her at her home at length, where she was very gracious to have us and and uh, sharp as ever, fantastic memory. She was just very hard of hearing. We had to yell our questions, but she told us all about the old time Minneapolis, Chicago, Detroit, Israel, the Rosh Hashiva growing up when she when when he was still in Chicago. She shared a lot, and we really enjoyed it. And she, I, I think it seemed that she enjoyed it as well. It was very difficult for her to hear over the phone when we had follow-up questions. So she suggested to us that we be in touch via email. So this 100-year-old woman answered all of our emails, typing it herself, answering pretty promptly, sometimes even late at night, 10, 10.30 at night, I'd be receiving emails from her. And I asked her over the last couple of years all kinds of history questions, which we thought she might know. Most recently, it was just literally a few days ago, I emailed her a question, she answered right away, sharp as ever, 10 o'clock at night, amazing, amazing, amazing woman. Um, may her memory be a blessing and the incredible le- legacy that she left the, the world through her children and uh, descendants. So we get back to Mike Tress, uh, one of the, one of the uh, more uh, fun and exciting feedbacks I got from part one was the long list of uh, translations of the word Heimish uh, that I received from many different listeners. Um, they're all good. I, I didn't particularly connect to any of them uh, in, in, you know, more than the word Heimish itself, so I think I'll stick to Heimish in the meantime. Um, before we get to his rescue work, Mike Tress's rescue work, which I want to delve into in this part too, I want to wrap up first um, with some anecdotes, uh, because in the part one I discussed his biography and his role in the uh, building of Tzairi Agudis Yisrael in America and uh, and what that meant in the greater context of American Orthodoxy. Um, but uh, what what defined Mike Trust most was his attention to detail and to attention and his attention to the individual. And therefore, I think it, it, it brings out that point of since that, that was so much part of his life and persona, if, if, I, if I would focus on just a few select anecdotes that specifically bring out this point of his focus on the individual and his attention to detail. There's an army chaplain, uh, who, who, uh, a U.S. army chaplain who bounced around the country from army base to army base, so his children never were in a stable educational environment and definitely not in a yeshiva. There um, and, uh, weren't that many yeshivas altogether in the United States at the time, for sure, not in, in far-off, uh, far-flung places where the army bases uh, were. Um, so he, uh, he, 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 his wife wanted to, that, you know, for her children to have an exposure to Yiddishkeit, to, to um, you know, to traditional Judaism. So she 
wanted to bring her two children to Camp Agura. And they went, and she showed up there and asked for her children to be accepted into Camp Agura. And she was told that there's no room. And they left. They still walked out of the office, and they walked down the path, and she and her two children are crying. And as Providence would have it, they met Mike Tress. And he said, he said, what's the issue? He said, they said, there's no room. He said, oh, of course there's room for you. And he himself goes and schleps two beds that he found in some, uh, you know, somewhere else. And he brings it into one of the bunks. And he says, there's, there's, there's room for you. There's going to be room for you. And he himself went ahead and did that. And, uh, you know, their lives changed. Um, you know, they, they had that, that authentic uh, Yiddishkeit summer experience in Camp Aguda, and then they later attended Yeshiva. And you know, you have the regular happily ever after ending. They're all religious families today, yada, yada, yada. But it was because he cared, and he cared to find them places. He founded Camp Aguda because kids were getting lost in the summer. I mentioned this in part one. As a child, he himself had wanted to go to camp, but was not able to. And that was the impetus for him to go ahead and found the camp for, you know, to be able to provide what he himself had been denied. Um, he was able to, you know, he had he had refugees who arrived after the war. He had them attend Camp Agoda for free, and he would make sure that they got fed because they came still thin and emaciated from displaced persons camps. Um, in in the, so um, so that was that was an important component of that. There was once a fellow who showed up at the Tzirei Agudas Yisrael office in Williamsburg. Um, with a New Testament in his hand that he had found. Now, this person had zero affiliation with Judaism. And he, he didn't know anything. And he had was, was looking at the Bible, what he thought was the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and he was curious. And he had asked someone, if I'm curious about Jewish life, do you know anyone I, who I could speak to? And they said, yeah, why don't you go to Tzirei Agudis Yisrael? So he walks into Tzirei Agudis Yisrael with with a New Testament to find out about Judaism. And uh, there was a big commotion. Everyone said, oh, he's probably a missionary. Throw him out. Get him out of here. He was not a missionary. He was just simply someone who was curious. So Mike Tress came out of his office. He heard this commotion. And he invites him in. And he saw that he was sincere, but he knew nothing. So Mike, Mike said to him, move in with me. Move into my house. I'll find a place for you. And I'll find someone to study with you and teach you. Now, today, his son is a prominent Rebbe in in a major yeshiva in the United States. So again, that's uh, um, a, 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 the care to the individual. And that was the idea of Pirche, was to teach children about Yiddishkeit, the impetus for the Shabbos afternoon gatherings. It was essentially Kirov, to care about these people, caring about their Yiddishkeit, um, and thinking about for ways to make it better and stronger. He created Torah classes for all types of Jews, just to just to be able to talk to them. Um, and, and he invite, would invite, invite them to his home. His wife, uh, Hinda, never knew who was, he was going to show up with uh, for the uh, meals because um, he would see someone in shul, he would befriend them. He's a Yid, he's a Jew, and then he would sometimes show up at home with more than 10 people, 10 guests that he felt that needed it. They felt that he can, that you can be used, you know, that, that, that they can use a, a nice, warm uh, home atmosphere. And his children, uh, you know, said that growing up, they did not know that there was a difference uh, between different types of Jews. Today, 
that's the, pretty much the only thing we know. That there's different types of Jews, and he's like that, and she's like that, and and they're different, and he's different, and they're different. He said, and his son told me, Megatrus' son told me that they, they were colorblind. They had no, they had no idea that there were different types of Jews. There was no such thing as a Hasidic Jew and a Sephardic Jew and Ashkenazic Jew and a Yeshiva Jew and a secular or religious. There was only Jews, Yidden. That was the only thing that uh, that made a difference. And while he was the CEO of Lampert Brothers Textiles, he used his uh, position to do chesed. There was once a woman who came in and um, and told her, uh, you know, told that uh, that she was working to pay tuition for her brother to attend yeshiva, and she lost her job, so she could not pay a tu- tuition for her brother to attend uh, a yeshiva. So she said, so he said, Mike Trust said to her, "Okay, uh, you'll have a job at Lampert. Come, to, come to me. You'll have a job." She arrives, and uh, she has no idea where to turn. A manager walked over to her and said, what are you doing here? And she said, well, Mr. Tress told me that I have a job. So the manager said, I don't know what, he, what he's talking about. There is no room here for you. And then and then uh, Mike Tress walks in just at the right second, and he says, here's your desk. You can work here. This is your job. You're starting. And there was a fascinating story. There was someone who was a Satmer Chassid, which is very much unaffiliated with Agudas Yisrael, very distant from the world of Agudas Yisrael. And he lost his job because he refused to work on Shabbos. So he didn't have, literally didn't have food to put on the table, didn't have any way to support his family. Someone said, go to see Mike Tress in the Aguda. And he said, I can't go to the Aguda. I'm Satmer, I'm going to ask Aguda for help. He knows I'm Satmer, it doesn't work like that. Um, and also, speak to Mike Tress, it sounds like he's a, like a Shegetz. He has like an, an American non-Jewish name. What, what is this, Mike? I'm not going to go to speak to someone, Mike, and I'm not going to Aguda. But when you're desperate, you you know, take desperate times comes for desperate measures. So he he uh, he came into him and he said he said he needs a job. He came, how, how, what should he do? He came, he came come to him for help, and he said, "How can I help you? What do you do for a living?" He said, "I work in glass. I'm a glazier." So he writes down something on a piece of paper, and he said, I know someone who's looking for a glazier. You go to this person, take this paper to this person, and he has a job for you. So he was very impressed that he came up with that on the spot, just like that. Uh, so he went, he went to that person, and the guy gave him a job. And he started paying him, and he started being able to support his family. And a few months later... The boss gives him a check, and he says, "Tell Mike Tress that he doesn't have to pay your paycheck here anymore, because uh, you've proven yourself. You're a good worker, and I can start paying you myself." And uh, Mike Tress had never even told the fellow that he had been paying his paycheck for him the entire time, just so that he should have a job. There was another woman who um, was going to pursue a career in journalism, so she came from Detroit to New York, and uh, and. Uh, and you know, and to uh, to um, so she, she to, to to go to school, and she didn't have her own typewriter, so she um, was going to use the typewriters from the local New York branch of the public library. And uh, the only day that she was able to use the library typewriter was on Shabbos. So she decided, like many others, that she, to, to further her career, she would have to give up on Shabbos. America in the nineteen thirties—that's what many people did. So, so she, so she, she was told 
that if she ever needs anything, she was told before she left Detroit that if she ever needs anything in New York, then she can go to Mike Tress at the Agudo office. So she decided to stop in and say hello, to pay her respects, to you know, just to initiate the relationship. So she goes into 616 Bedford Avenue, and she and, uh, and says hello to Mike Tress. And happens to mention what she's doing, journalism and the typewriter, and she says uh, that she's not going to be keeping Shabbos anymore because she needs to use the typewriter. So Mike Tress says to her, you need a typewriter? In, because of a typewriter, you're not going to keep Shabbos anymore? We have an extra typewriter right here in the Agudo office. Here, here's, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm gonna, he, he picks up the typewriter, and he carries it to her apartment. Now, there was no other typewriter in the Agudo office. He gave her the last and only typewriter in the Agudo office. But to him, it was... It was simple. They're going to save someone from not keeping, from you know, violating the Shabbos. It was, uh, it was the uh, you know, he was able to relate to these people because he was he was a role model. He was an American himself. He had gone through it himself. He wanted to instill this pride to the j- children of the next generation. Ramesha Wolfson, who's today the Mashkiach in Tarvadas, and has a whole community of his own followers. So he said that of the forty classmates in his Tayyavadas elementary school, only four remained religious. Now this is not the kids who went to public school, this is the kids who went to Yeshiva elementary school. And those four were involved in Pirchei Yisrael. So even the Yeshiva boys were lost without Pirchei to a certain extent. So it was all about instilling pride in Yiddishkeit and uh, and um you know, like you know, with Pirche, with the yeshiva, with the with the camp, he would you know he would watch the the uh, the children go on buses to to um, to camp in this when there was only secular camps. Camp Agudo was the first religious camp, and he would, he would watch them, the kids in Williamsburg uh, get on the buses for the summer, and Mike Tress would actually cry and say, "Look, they're going for two months away for the summer. Look what's going to happen. Who knows what's going to happen?" And that's you know gives him the motivation to start the uh, camp Agudo. Okay. Now let's move on to the rescue work during the Holocaust. And I want to say the, a qualifying word about Holocaust rescue work in context. Things are often taken out of all proportions, um, you know, to blow rescue work out of proportion. And that probably comes, I mean, you have to ask a psychologist this question, why? But it probably comes from a basic human need to focus on the positive and, and to, you know, may, try to find the bright spots in a pretty much a horrible tragedy. Um, so the the over focus on rescue is is you know it's good to focus on rescue um, but the over focus and to blow things out of proportion is is uh, you know for historical accuracy we're going to try to put it into con- in the proper context the focus in this story and it's important is is on the efforts made by Mike Tress and people like him not on the results as there were not many results i always feel the need to dampen the enthusiasm on results of Holocaust rescue work and shift the focus to the efforts. In fact, that makes it all the more amazing about people like Mike Tress who threw all their energies into rescue work. Why? Because it's much easier to devote so much investment and energy when it produces results. Look what we've done, and that continue and that that sense of accomplishment motivates people to continue continued action. In this context, he saw how little they were accomplishing, and yet he continued as energetic as before. Because maybe this new initiative, maybe this new project will save lives. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So I think, you know, not only is it for historical accuracy, but I think it makes it all the more incredible what he did by the fact that uh, that there were not that many bright spots on the horizon. 
Um, you know, and in, in Rosenblum in, in the book uh, even brings an example that uh, you know the um, at the you know the sum total uh, what they can actually account for is up to two thousand Jews owe their lives to visas obtained through Tzirei, and seventy leading Gedolei Yisrael and their families came to the United States in special emergency visitors' visas procured in large part through Mike's Tress's efforts, through Mike Tress's efforts, including one dramatic Shabbos trip to, the, trip to the State Department on behalf of Aaron Cutler. So again, so years and years and years, and all this money raised, and they were able to get 2,000 Jews in, plus 70 leading rabbis and special emergency visas, which is an amazing accomplishment. Um, did he endeavor to do much more? Did he throw his energies in to do much more? Yes, he wanted to save hundreds of thousands. He probably wanted to save millions. He saved 2,000, and that's an amazing thing. So that's an amazing accomplishment, even if he actually wanted to do much more. In the late 1930s, Mike Tress, Kristallnacht was a turning point in the Nazi uh, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, anti-Jewish legislation and, and, and behavior towards the Jewish population in Germany and Austria. So at that point, there's you know an ever increasing need to obtain visas and get to be able to immigrate to other countries. So Mike Trust establishes the Refugee and Immigration, and Immigration Division of Tiiri Agudas Yisrael, and this is before the Nazi invasion of Poland. This is before the Agudas Rabbanim founds the Vatat Sala, and and it's for all and it's for anyone who needs uh, you know to anyone who is a refugee in immigration. It's not exclusively for rabbis and. Yish- <clears throat> And yeshiva students, as was the future Vatatzel organization. This is open to all. This is part of the Tzirei Agudis Yisrael. It's not to be confused. There are different organizations involved in rescue work, and we're focusing now on Mike Tress and the Tzirei Agudis Yisrael. He assisted refugees from Germany in following the Anschluss in March 1938, also from Vienna, from Austria. And of course, like I said, Kristallnacht was a turning point, and by then also was the Sudetenland, the Czechoslovakia too. Uh, through the World Agoda Channels, he received telegrams describing the mass murder in Poland and, and in the East uh, in, in September 1942. So if we jump ahead, we're here at the first few years, we're talking about visas and immigration, uh, affidavits, that's from 1938 to 1942. That's four years of work. September 1942, when he finds out about the mass murder, about the final solution, he springs into action at a higher level than before. Bear in mind... That though Yaakov Rosenheim, Moreno Yaakov Rosenheim of the World Agudas Yisrael Organization, and Blazer Silver, the head of the United States Agudas Yisrael Organization, and the Vatatzelo, which was a major Orthodox rescue organization, were all in the United States, still Mike Tress was still the, one of the primary addresses and the primary Aguda activist and the address for all rescue activity. He's still playing a central role. In the initial stages, the focus was on refugees. Uh, the Agoda was able to get the clergy visas above the quota, like I said um, before. And following Pearl Harbor, there's another project that he has. Uh, the Tsi'irei Agoda Yisrael members are drafted into the military. So he corresponds with them, he sends them kosher food, he tries to assist them with their issues of Shabbos in the military. Uh, the Tsi'irei Agoda Yisrael, under Mike's, uh, Mike's uh, direct, uh, directorship, establishes the Jewish Servicemen's Bureau. And so you have all these projects going on. You have the immigration and, and refugees uh, visas. You have the initial reports of mass murder. 
Um, even before the final solution becomes apparent, he sensed that the Jewish people were in danger and that he must do something to save them. He lobbied government officials. He works with the Varat Sala and also independently with Tzirei. Late in Washington, late in 1944, he traveled to Washington and he spent a Shabbos there for a specific mission where he met with Eleanor Roosevelt um, to be able to, to, to plead with her husband on, on, on the Jewish people's behalf. For rescue, he fought the apathy. People called him an alarmist. He worked closely with Rabaran Cutler. Uh, he actually pleaded with Rabaran Cutler to allow him to daven with the minion. Rabaran said, "No, your rescue work supersedes the requirement of praying with the minion." And then, following the war after liberation, it's again helping with affidavits, helping the rehabilitate and send spiritual and physical assistance to the survivors in the uh, DP camps, which he himself visited, which I'll get to also in a second. Um, and uh, and um, he sent packages, T-Regulator sends packages to, to DP camps, spiritual and material sustenance for the survivors. Then as an UNRWA, uh, rep- United Nations refugee re- representative, he visits the displaced persons camp. He's one of the first ones to visit, to assess their needs, which he did. And not only that, but even though he received a hotel a place to stay in a hotel as an UNRWA representative wearing an UNRWA uniform, he decided on his own accord to sleep with the survivors in the barracks. Uh, he came back shaken, a changed person. He never really recovered from that. He was, it really, really transformed him. It, it, that, uh, that personal encounter confronting the horror and the tragedy, he literally gave everything he had to them. His tefillin, his belongings, his clothing, he came off the plane. He wasn't wearing socks he was such a doer with such a heart that people were in awe of him and how much he really cared. He had been one of the first ones to arrive and visit the DP camps, arriving in December 1945. Um, and then he would take out, in order to assist the survivors that he had met, he would take out personal ads in the newspapers to assist them in locating family members. And he said, you know, with, with him as the liaison, he, he would write in the ads, you know, contact, if you are a relative, if you can help with any information, contact Michael Tress at the Agudo office in, 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 in Williamsburg. He took their rebuilding personally, again, on the individual level. There's an amazing audio of him uh, from the, uh, a 1956 uh, gathering um, at the uh, um, at the Aguda, um, which was a gathering to to uh, honor in Pirchei Gadol to honor Josh Silberman's. Um, so in, he describes in a very powerful way his encounter with survivors in Feldafing, a DP camp, and he says it was the fifth day of Shvat, which was the yard site of the Sasemes, and they were making it was a group of Gerach Hasidim, and they were survivors who were proving a a, a yard site tish for the Sasemes his yard site, and they're singing on Imamin. And he was describing how inspiring it was to him that despite the fact that they lost they lost everything, that they still believe that the Jewish people are going to live forever, that they're, they're able to proclaim on Imamin. And this is an amazing audio. It's very clear, and you can really hear the passion. He's literally shouting about how how amazed that he was at this scene that he had witnessed um, in, in the DP camps. Um, he described his experiences of trying to comfort a young... When he came back, he couldn't stop talking about what he had seen. So he described audiences that he spoke to upon his arrival back in, in, in 1946. He described he was trying to comfort a young boy crying for his mother who he no longer had. He saw a, a survivor of the Zunderkommando, the Special Task Force, 
who had the worst job in human history. They had to work in the gas cha- in the gas chambers of crematorium, and this one of the only survivors of the Zunder Commando, Mike Trust, met him. He was wandering around at night looking for his murdered family with a candle, and he was crying, They're not here. It's, I, I, I'm the one who burned them myself. And, you know, that was on one hand the horror he had experienced, the, the, the tragedy that he had confronted, and on the other hand, he would describe those young Gerich Hasidim making, uh, making the yard side of Svasemes, another group studying Daf Yoimi, uh, he said he saw men trying to act human, grasping at every straw to try to live like normal human beings. Um, this is so he this um, he promised them that they won't be forgotten. He assisted with their immigration. He obtained visas and affidavits. He found them homes and jobs upon arrival. He helped them get married. He very often even walked them down to the chuppah. He was someone who literally changed the world that he lived in in so many ways by focusing on the details and individuals. He, to, to, then in early 1948, a couple of years later, he founds another post-Holocaust organization to save a child foundation to locate and return uh, to the Jewish people, the Jewish children who had been hidden in Christian homes and monasteries. Um, so these different projects, um, I'm going to bring a few stories about now, uh, um, about each and every one of these projects. There's four projects that I mentioned in his Holocaust rescue, rescue work. There's Visas, affidavits, immigration, refugees, that's one project. Number two is rescue once the final solution becomes apparent, lobbying government officials for rescue um, and, and stuff like that. Number three is, is uh, um, assisting the survivors after the war. Number four is, uh, is, is this Save a Child Foundation. And there's really a fifth one, which is related to World War II, less so the Holocaust, and that's the Jewish Servicemen's uh, Bureau. So uh, one of uh, one of one of Mike Tress's sons related to me that um, that uh, he uh, that he was in shul and someone noticed that the name Tress is on his talus bag. So he said, "I was in Feldafing, and um, and there were other representatives of the Jewish people who had visited us in the DP camp. And then Mike Tress arrived, and he arrives in an UNRWA uniform, and he's trying to ask people names that he could find sponsors for affidavits back in the United States." said, most people who came to visit, you know, came for a photo op, some words of inspiration, and then they left. Mike Trust wasn't like that. He lived with them. He took care of them. He lived, like I said, he slept in their barracks. He promised to bring them over, and he did. Um, and he's, this fellow who was relating the story, he said that he's a Gera Chassid, but he's a bigger Chassid of Mike Trust than he is of all the Gera Rebbes. And if you know anything about Gera Chassid, then that's a pretty big statement. Um... You know, when, uh, when he was at, Mike Trust was asked when he came off the plane, and and he literally arrived back with nothing. He looked like a beggar without almost you know without not any, none of his regular clothes. And he someone you know he was someone who was very usually quite particular about how he looked proper and you know you know neat and 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 with his with his you know his put together look. And here he looked like a mess. And someone said, how did you do that? How did you give away the clothes off your back? So he said, I said to myself that I could really buy new clothes. Um, these people can't. So I'll just, I'll buy new clothes when I get back. Um, people would write letters to him. And this is, again, his attention to detail. A woman in a displaced persons camp wrote him a letter. And this is from the correspondence uh, in his archive that has been uh, been used recently. That she, her daughter needs a new dress. 
and the size is size whatever, X, Y, Z. So can he can Mike Tress arrange for her to get a new dress? He went out and made sure to get her a new dress. So he was busy taking care of the little things and also the larger things. And that's what really boggles the mind, is that he never overlooked the little, th- little people and the little things. Um, he would invite refugees who he had helped bring over to live in the upper floor of his home. Um, there was a refugee family who stayed there for a year, and, there was, and he said that there were other families who stayed there at the time as well. And this lady said that Mike Shress would walk her son to Tarvadas every day together with his sons, as if it was all part of the same family. And Mrs. Hindutress would make her son lunch every day. And then they went downstairs for dinner. And then he paid for the mother to, for mother's wedding to remarry after she had lost her first husband during the war. And, and these stories come in all the time. Uh, there was a, a refugee who arrived in the United States after the war. And, uh, and, uh, and, and I'm sorry, many refugees who arrived and didn't have jobs. And like I said, with the story of the Satmar Chassid, so many similar stories, how he would help them find jobs. Um, he said that there was another story that, um, that, uh, at, uh, sorry, with the Satmar, I mentioned Satmar, the Satmar of himself, where Mike Tress uh, arranged for him to to get U.S. citizenship without having to go appear before a judge. With all kinds of government connections, he was able to arrange for the judge to come down to the Satmarov in his house. He would not have to go to court. So again, this is, you know, if someone like the Satmarov, Satmarov is not affiliated with Agudis Yisrael, not even in the slightest. He was very anti-Agudis Yisrael. But it was, it was about Mike Tress and the Satmarov. And the, the, the political affiliations uh, fell to the wayside when you're dealing with with uh, with someone like that, um, during the war years, uh, his rescue work was so intense that uh, Ramesha Aaron Stern uh, related that when he was in the Agudo office in 1943, when people were working tirelessly around the clock to arrange the release of different people from the Warsaw Ghetto, including the great last Rav of Warsaw, the Prager Rav Menachem Zemba, who was one of the greatest Torah leaders before the war, and they heard that during the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, they heard that he was murdered. And uh, so everyone, you know, sobbed and, and said, Ay and he said, Mike Tress fainted. And I want to point out that how incredible the story is, is that to the best of my knowledge, Mike Tress never met Rabbi Nachum Zemba. He fainted. I mean, that's something you can't really fake. It's, 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 it's astounding. Um, so he, the... Um, if we get back to, to the visas, helping with visas and affidavits, which is before the war, the initial stages of the war, and then again after the war. So Zire tries to arrange these affidavits and visas, documents that could mean life or death. Um, everything was an application process. Often, Very often the State Department would reject it. The signer of an affidavit wasn't financially capable. He was not a close relative. He was already under Nazi occupation, so they were suspicious of espionage. So in the Tress Family Archive, there's all these applicants' names who applied for visas, and then they were rejected by the State Department, and then you can look for those names on Yad Vashem's database and find out that they were killed. Um, so unfortunately, there's too many stories of ones that the, that the visa uh, process did not have a happy ending. Um, and Mike Tress would go weekly to Washington to try to expedite the process. There's an amazing file of correspondence in the Tress Archives, that between Mike Tress and secretaries 
low-level desk secretaries in the visa department of the State Department, where my trust would develop relationships with them and know their birthdays and send them a note and a letter on their birthday. He would arrange for, uh, he would help them if they came to New York, he would arrange for them uh, hotels where to stay. You're talking about non-Jewish secretaries who don't have big, huge political power. They're not the heads, of, they're not Breckenridge Long or Sumner Wells or or, uh, or Cordell Hall. These are just the clerks working behind the desk. But he understood his attention to detail that if you develop relationships, then these people would push the applications forward. And because of that, he decided to invest. He would wish them a mazel tov, or congratulations rather, if they would have a child. Um, one, he sent once a, 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 a there's a letter in, in the archive that he had sent um, as a present, as a birthday present, traveling luggage for a vacation to one of the secretaries there. And she wrote back, that she's amazed at the, the this travel luggage. Even the Duke of, of Edinburgh uh, doesn't have such nice travel luggage. So he would invest in these relationships, and they paid off. Um, so, so the the uh, that's that's that was that project. Now we talk about um, the there's there's another another point here that these visas they didn't even know um, if the people who were still alive who they were trying to obtain visas for often they would get it too late. And everything, all their hard work and hours and travels would go down the drain. And just one classic example of Reb, Reb, Mike Tress's mentor, Rebel Khanan Vasserman, who I spoke about in part one. Also the Gdusha scene of Babav, the Babav Rebbe, the Mike Tress tried getting visas for both. Both of them were killed and he didn't even know that they were killed. They'd be working on it and continue not knowing. So he, there's documents in the archive showing that Mike just tried to save Rebbe Khanan in 1941. And then in 1945, after the war is over, okay, five years later, there's a telegram that he sends to Harry Goodman of the British Agoda, the London Agoda, after liberation. And in the telegram it says, do anything you can to save Rebbe Khanan Vasserman, money's not an issue. So, you know, they didn't even realize that Rebbe Khanan was gone for five years. So for every success story, there's... So many, so many more that did not work out, and but they didn't give up. They didn't get frustrated. They kept going. There's no sense of accomplishment here, and they never stopped. And of course, there's the individuals who did get out, like Rabbi and Cutler, and the impact that he subsequently has on on the Jewish people. So you just do what you have to do, and uh, and and you try your best. And the same thing goes um, with his project for Jewish soldiers. Um, the Jewish soldiers from the Tzirei Agudis Yisrael in the American army, they wanted to stay religious in the army. The army was not, the military, excuse me, the military was not very accommodating. And there's all these letters from these soldiers to Mike Tress. And it's an overlooked topic because we talk about rescue, we talk about the Holocaust, we talk about uh, all kinds of other things. So uh, Jewish American soldiers in the American army, that's, that's almost like a privileged class. It's not, it's not really a story of the Holocaust here, right? But it's an important story because these these soldiers were alone in a somewhat you know non friendly borderline hostile environment. There's there's a letter from uh, an, a, a soldier to to Mike Tress to ask ask him if he can pose a question to Reb Shlomo Hyman, the Rashiva Tervidas, if he's allowed to put on tefillin in a bathroom because the only place and time that he'd be able to do it in in his base or wherever he is is in the bathroom. So these people are overwhelmed. They have nowhere to turn to. They're lonely. And he's the personal address. 
And they're talking to him about Erev Pesach. There's no kosher food for Pesach. The only thing that arrived is the food package from Tzairi. And this kept them going. So compared to the Holocaust, again, it's not big stuff. But for these soldiers, it was uh, overwhelming. And there's files and files of these of this correspondence which discusses their dilemmas and about working on Shabbos. And he's working on all these different fronts. Um, He's, you know, he's working with Mike Tress is working with uh, uh, the Sternbuchs and Rechobler Weissmandel, the negotiations at the end of the war, which eventually gets 1,200 Jews out of Theresienstadt, uh, you know, raising money and sending it through the War Refugee Board. And, and, uh, and they're, they're literally, he's, he's, he's everywhere. Um, he, you know, the, uh, he, and he keeps on trying. Um, so it continues. Uh, after the war, um, in the the you know the visa work, which is less drama, no easy success. It's very tedious, no glory work, um, and even more problematic was finding the children after the war, uh, hidden in non-Jewish homes or monastery and convents, getting them out. Many times it was the children who didn't want to leave. In the Orthodox historiography, they like telling us how. The non-Jews wouldn't give up on them. Uh, you know, they wouldn't give up. Very often it was the children themselves. They didn't remember their parents, and they didn't want to leave. Very often it was actually just the opposite. The, the, the parents were willing to, the adoptive parents were willing to give them up because they understood that they're a Jewish child, but it was the child who didn't want to leave. This was their home. And it was, very often it was very traumatic. Uh, many children had a hard time with it, and, the, and uh, they, uh, they, you know, for many years after, so... Uh, d- d- uh, uh, Mike Tress dispatched Moshe Swerdloff, who was a soldier in the U.S. Army, and Herman Treiser, who later became a mechutten with Mike Tress, became the father-in-law of one of Mike Tress's sons. It was only after uh, Tress had already passed away. Some wild stories. They used all kinds of extra-legal means uh, to essentially kidnap these children to you know, convince them to come with them. They posed as fictitious relatives of the child, smuggling him over borders and... Uh, it, absolutely wild stories in Belgium and France, and eventually they're caught, and the Belgian government was not too excited about it, and they got arrested, and Mike Tress had to pay for their court case, and had to pay for them to get out, and they eventually got thrown out of the country. There were several dozen children who were rescued, but they really de- definitely tried hard. So um, that was the, the a little bit about the rescue work of Mike Tress uh, during the Holocaust years and post-Holocaust years. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter, J Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.